I think one of the joys of writing fantasy is being able to write the world you want to see. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Jamie Lee Moyer. She lives in San Antonio, the land of cowboys, cactus, and rhinestones. She writes books about murder, betrayal, friendship, magic, and kissing, an activity her cats approve of, even the kissing. She's the author of the Delia and Gabe books, also a poet, editor, and reader. We're going to be talking this episode about historical fantasy, among other things, but I think we will start, as we often do, with a little bit of your history with the genre. How did you get into reading science fiction fantasy? Has it always been there? Is it something you've drifted in and out of? Once I got into science fiction and fantasy, I never left. When I was a kid, my mother would take all of us to the library at least once a week. There were four of us. We would walk down the streets of L.A. to wherever the the closest library was where we were living, and we were allowed to check out as many books as we can carry. And I discovered the first book I remember reading was The Borrowers, which is a fantasy book by Mary Norton, Mm -hmm. a British author, and it's about a race of people small people that live in the houses of humans, unseen, unheard, and unnoticed. And I fell in love with that book. And it was the first in a series. And I read the whole series. And then I went looking for more. And as I went on, I discovered Bradbury and Heinlein and Asimov. And once I took off, I just kept going. Okay. So you went from the borrowers to spaceships, it sounds like. I did. When I was younger, the majority of what I read was science fiction. And I I loved all of it. I loved, you know, being in other worlds and other places. But as I got older and became an adult, fantasy became my first love. I still I still love science fiction. I still read science fiction, but my heart is really in fantasy. And are are you an omnivore? Do you stay very close to the genre? Do you differentiate between fiction and nonfiction? Oh, yeah. De- <laughs> My friends actually laugh at me because I'm a dyed-in-the-wool fantasy writer, and the vast majority of my nonfiction reading is science. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have read through entire sections at the library about, you know, human evolution, paleontology, dinosaurs, paleoarchaeology. I read Howard Carter's original three-volume set on discovering King Tut's tomb. I have read so much science and so much anthropology that it's not even funny. Yet I write fantasy. <laughs> is that research, or this is this is what interests you and draws you, and you've got to be reading reading something new and learning something more? It's what draws me, and because you know I am curious all the time. I want to understand how people function. I want to understand how the world functions. And reading um, Jane Goodall's books about the chimpanzees or reading Louis Leakey's books about discovering, you know, early humans, all of that fascinates me and it keeps me entertained. Okay. I have never been a person that likes the classics. I know a lot of people think this is heresy, but I can't stand to read Jane Austen. It drives me crazy. If anything, I think studying psychology may have made me a better writer mm-hmm. because I understand characters and motivation and 
studying abnormal psychology probably helped make my bad guys worse. <laughs> the first story I remember writing and finishing, I was 11. Okay. And I showed it to my best friend's mother, who took the story and kept it because she said that what I had written was inappropriate for an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> that's, that's helpful. Yes, it was, it was very helpful. But, you know, on one hand, I was like, she kept my story. And on the other hand, I was like, wow, I had an impact. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I have written my entire life. We're going to move now to Jamie's connection to fantasy and historical fantasy, moving on from the spaceships of Bradbury and Heinlein. You'll be shocked to learn there's a library involved. It was kind of a discovery and a revelation, because what I found in the bookstore was mainly male science fiction writers. And then we moved to a different place, and I'm going through the library, and I found these books, a series of anthologies that Pamela Sargent edited called Women of Wonder, mm. which were a mix of science fiction, and I, I believe there was some fantasy in there too. But it introduced me to all these authors I had never heard of before, and they were all women. And I was just, I was like, wow. <laughs> so I started looking, you know, consciously looking for these women, and a lot of them wrote fantasy. And that's how I discovered Anne McCaffrey, Mercedes Lackey, Vonda McIntyre, Barbara Hamley, you know, mm -hmm. as I'm, as I'm chasing these, you know, authors down the rabbit hole and trying to find books by them, I found books by other women. And once I got into that kind of fantasy, I didn't leave. Okay. It was amazing. Now, McCaffrey for me is always like my images are always going to be less uh, sort of afraid and seeing the dragons for the first time and being introduced to the little wormlings, the dragonettes or whatever they're called. But I remember that having very strong kind of visual and having a scene that, that sort of jumps out and is in my head. And is that the sort of connection you made there or was it characters? It was characters. It was the dragons. It was the fire lizards. It was the harpers. It was the jumping between in the cold and the breathlessness. All of that hooked me. And before I got to her dragon books, I was reading The Ship Who Sang. Okay. Her science fiction. And I loved those books. You know, I, I read those. I loved that. And that's what led me to her dragon books. And I can see some of the problems with the books now that I couldn't see when I was tearing through them, like, you know, mm -hmm. a starving person. <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure that, uh, Dragon Riders was the first, the first book I, I fell asleep reading. I can't say that, <laughs> but you know, I, once I discovered these books, I just ripped through them as fast as I could, everything I could find. And I found Ursula Le Guin and that was like instant love. The Wizards of Ursi loved those books, just loved them. And I love her science fiction too, but the Ursi books were the first ones I read and they were just astonishing. Yeah. Barbara Hamley's books were astonishing to me. She doesn't get the recognition she really deserves. I don't know anything about her. Is it science fiction, fantasy? What, what's? She writes a little bit of everything. She writes, the books I was reading were fantasy. I can never pronounce this correctly, but it's the Darwith trilogy, I believe. The Time of the Dark, The Walls of Air. 
and there's a third one. Those books scared the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> they they scared me. They delighted me. I adored them, and I read every single thing she she wrote in the um, science fiction and fantasy genre. Everything I could find. She also writes mysteries. She writes the Benjamin January mysteries. I have friends who devour those. I haven't gotten into them because I'm trying to you know keep up with my own genre here. Mm-hmm. She wrote two books, two vampire books that to me, are probably the top two vampire books written before, you know, M.L. Brennan started her Generation V series. They're called Traveling with the Dead and Those Who Walk the Night. Okay. They're set in like a Victorian era England, and they were amazing. They weren't like other vampire urban fantasy that was out there that I'd been reading. They were incredible. They're still incredible. People will read them till their copies fall apart and then hunt down new used copies because <laughs> they're out of print. So, you know, Barbara Hamley is amazing. One of my favorite fantasy books is one that she wrote called Dragon's Bane about John and um, Jenny, who are older, their parents. It was one of the best books I have ever read because, you know, Jen- Jenny has to make choices. She has to decide between whether whether her husband and her children come first or whether she goes off and does this other thing. And they were incredible books. You know, they're, they're part of a series too. And I loved them. I loved all of it. Jamie came onto this episode to talk about historical fantasy, a genre that I've heard discussed more than read. This is pretty far out of my wheelhouse because I tend to read big secondary world, vaguely medieval, but the point was not really to, to capture any essence of medieval fantasy. And I've sort of dabbled in historical fantasy a couple of times, but, but not a lot. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, about what that is and, and what are some of the hallmarks of the genre and some of the books that, that really define it for you? Historical fantasy can be... A lot of different things. A lot of what I see defined as alternate history, I think, is really historical fantasy in disguise. In some ways, steampunk is historical fantasy because it's set against the backdrop of the Victorian era and uses a lot of those different tropes and shorthands. Mm -hmm. And then there, there are writers like Charlie Finley, again, he put out a series of novels set during the Revolutionary War that dealt with magic and witches and wizards, but he peopled his novels with real historical figures. Historical figures were the characters. And then there's the kind of historical fantasy I write, and I believe Elizabeth Bear writes, and there are other people out there. Um, Marie Brennan with her Lady Trent mm. memoirs. Mm-hmm. The history is the backdrop for the characters, and that's the way I like that's my favorite kind of historical fantasy, to where the history is what goes on around the people in the book and around their story. And they're just living their lives just like you would or like I would. And that's how I like to write historical fantasy. And that's my favorite kind to read. I love Elizabeth Spare's last book, um, Karen Memory. It's set in a Seattle that never really existed. It's kind of sort of steampunk, but it's in the American West. Mm-hmm. And it's a great book. And she put a couple real historical figures in there. Bass Reeves is a marshal who shows up in the book who was a real U.S. marshal in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. That was great. 
I love Marie Brennan's books because even though they're not real world historical fantasy. What with the dragons and all. (laughs) Yeah, with the dragons and with the made up countries, but they still have that same society to them that happened in the in an equivalent time period in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, Mary Robinette Kowal's books are the same way. Mm-hmm. Things like that. I love historical fantasy where the characters are an integral part of the world, but the history itself is not the story. Just like, you know, we might be concerned about the presidential election. They might be concerned about giving women the vote. Mm-hmm. And, and my characters are. They might be concerned. They're... For instance, in my trilogy, World War One is always there because the trilogy takes place during those years. And people could not escape it if they wanted to. And every once in a while, it reaches out and it touches their lives. It taps them on the shoulder and reminds them it's there. There will be newsboys on the corner. They called them newsies then. They were mm-hmm. usually barefoot children. And they would they would be standing on the corner shouting the he- the latest headlines from Europe. Refugees, you know, fled to the United States, fleeing the war. So there are reminders, but it's not the center point of the story. Mm-hmm. And if I want to read history as the center point of a story, I will read a biography or I will read a history book. There's a series of books I read a long time ago. The first book was called Across the Nightingale Floor, which was set in a world that was feudal Japan, but not real Japan. And it was an excellent book. I loved it, not only because of the beauty of the language the writer used and the history and the atmosphere and the culture. Actually, it was because of the language, the history, the atmosphere (laughs) and the culture. I never totally connected with the characters which is why I never finished the series. But the first book, I loved it for those other things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean to a certain extent about everything needing history to back it up. Because if Liam Hearn, this writer, did great things with that background and that history and created a culture I could totally believe in, including, you know, the restrictions on widows marrying other men and it was it was an incredible book just because of that and that's what i and it was totally definitely fantasy just like george r r martin's books are based on i think it was the war of the roses yeah i think so although i don't i I don't know enough of that period to be able to recognize the references but i've i've heard from people who do that that it's recognizable so you know You can take any period in history and read it and let it churn and mix in your brain and spit out a totally different story that still has a historical background. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to say, you know, hi, this is about the year 1214, (laughs) but it has to be based in that. It has to have some foundation or it doesn't come across as a realistic world. Readers aren't going to invest in it. I'll note for those interested that there's also a new Liam Hearn series coming out. I'll have a link in the show notes. We're going to take a break now to run a review of one of my favorite books, Sorcerer of the Wild Leaps. Those of you who follow on Twitter or listen closely are probably aware that I adored this book. I read a review by Leslie Light on the website Black Nerd Problems that captures the book extremely well, and Leslie agreed to read it for the podcast. Review of the Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, written by Kai Ashante Wilson. 
When I read fantasy, I generally stay on the high fantasy side of the fence. Elves and dragons and highfalutin magic are literary staples that I love to hate, cliches and all. The sword and sorcery category hasn't really drawn my attention until I saw the cover for Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps by Kai Ashante Wilson. This was a book I wanted to read. As a subgenre of fantasy, sword and sorcery fiction was first categorized in the 1950s, though the origins of it are in the 30s and before, with titles like Conan the Barbarian. It is typified by a focus on a single male protagonist, fighting his way through obstacles both mundane and magical, often to regain his lost glory or to save the damsel in distress. My damsels saved themselves, thank you very much. It wasn't until the 1980s with Charles Saunders' Amaro series that the category got its first black male lead, arguably launching the sword and soul subgenre, though it wasn't called that then. But now, now my friends, we live in a much better time, and Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps is here to prove it. Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps is set in a mythical African-like continent, with a narrow range of green lands and hills in the north that borders the sea a wide desert that is crisscrossed with caravan trails, and a span of trackless jungle filled with monsters that are kept at bay by an old, barely understood magical power. South and east of the jungle are the civilized lands, the center of which is the city of Old Olorum, a reference, I think, to Old Zimbabwe, the city of towers raised without mortar. Into this setting comes our sorcerer hero, Domain and a crew of brothers protecting a caravan of merchants traveling from north to south on the road from Mother of Waters to Olorum City. Now when I say a crew of brothers, I mean brothers, with given names like Kumalo and Walid, earned nicknames like Teef, so-called because of his teeth, and Messed Up, who earned his name in much respect by taking a sword to the face. The captain of this mercenary band is Issa. Domain and Issa share many things, Chiefly, neither of them is exactly what they seem. They are both descendants of earlier races of demigods, most of whom are ascended into bodies of pure light. But they aren't the same race. Each has their own special skills and appearances that they use together for their own entertainment and the protection of the other brothers in the crew. The chemistry and interaction between Domain and Issa is so strong, there are moments where I wondered if Domain was actually the sidekick in the heroic story of Issa. They trade the lead back and forth right up until the very end. The standout in this book is the juxtaposition between the narration and the dialogue. Wilson's narration is rich in the style of the genre, wordy and twisty in good ways, most of the time. Example. Who minds on the season's very best day the briars on the roses of the rose garden? No one, Captain. And what man given a treat? who's gone without, who has a sweet tooth, even notices the bits of comb in their honey. No man, Captain. Ah, it is lovely, well-timed, true in that romantic way. Meanwhile, his dialogue has a completely different He takes as the pigeon of the crew a classic street-level black American slang. For example, that was gold, my nigga, not fake, not fool, not dross, gold. Nigga, it was some official shit you just did. That, my nigga, was straight up gold-plated like shit. The switch is jarring at first, and the surprisingness of it. Once it gets to flowing, though, it really brings the story home. At times, both of these narrative techniques, the elaborate descriptions and the code switch slang, are overdone, leading to me misreading some passages and losing track of who was speaking. There are also instances of tense switching between the present and the past that make the action difficult to follow at times. 
Really, these are minor critiques for the book. The men in this crew all have a believable swagger, and as they are also risking their lives daily for just a few coins, they have a vulnerability, a homesickness that ties them together and invites the reader in. These characters are black people in a fantastic world full of black people. Actually, let me take that back. These are black men in a fantastic world full of black people. There are, in fact, no women in the book who are given a name or speaking part of note. That doesn't bother me much. I'd rather a novel not try to shove in a woman character just for the sake of it. There isn't anything problematic from a feminist perspective here, though. All the women that Domain speaks about or describes are treated as if they are full characters, not stereotypes. They just all happen to be off doing other things. So if you need your novels to pass the Bechtel test, this one doesn't. That does mean that the romance of the novel takes place between two men. Black gay male love doesn't usually make it into fantasy novels, at least not fantasy novels that aren't explicitly erotic or sexual in their writing. There isn't any explicit sex in the novel, but the relationships are clearly there, and they drive the characters' motivations in believable ways. Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps by Kaya Shante Wilson follows in the footsteps of other sword and sorcery and sword and soul novels, while also strongly making its own way. The plot takes interesting, unexpected turns with subtlety and skill that pulled me into Demand's adventures. This book is easy to read and easy to recommend. This is Leslie Light, book reviewer for Black Nerd Problems. Again, thanks to Leslie for that review. I will probably be experimenting with running a few other reviews on the podcast, so let me know what you think of the idea and also if there's a piece you've really enjoyed somewhere. Now we're going to return to the discussion with Jamie about the importance of fantasy and add a few more books to your to-be-read pile. I think one of the joys of writing fantasy is being able to write the world you want to see to a certain extent. I'm not thinking in terms of message books, but in because you're building a world basically from scratch, even when you're doing historical fantasy, you can change things around and give people a view of the way it could be or the way you'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the best, the very best things about science fiction and fantasy. They used to say that science fiction was the literature of ideas. I think it still is. I think fantasy is too. You can show people things in a story that you couldn't just come out and say to them. Mm -hmm. And that, that's one of my favorite things about genre, yeah. hands down. That and keeping the sense of wonder. You know, I will, I never ever want to lose that wow factor when I'm reading a book or when I'm writing a book. Mm -hmm. I always want to amaze myself and I want to be amazed when I'm reading. Yeah. I, I just finished Julie Zernada's Survival, which is the first book in a trilogy that she's got. And it's science fiction and it's a, a scientist who's a, she studies salmon in a near future earth that's part of an intergalactic civilization. And she makes friends with an alien and discovers a, a great possible threat to all life. And, and the book kept reminding me that there was this human and this human with a, a kind of small worldview and focus. She had been very focused on doing her science and studying her salmon and, you know, sort of ignoring the, the outside world as much as possible, reminding me that there was this this human who didn't know all that much, who was interacting with an alien and an alien with a different physiology and a different psychology. And I have found one of the things 
Like, I think there are a lot of a lot of different ways to think about and read. See if I can remember how you said it. The the world you would like to see, or or maybe making possible, or or showing the world as it could be. And I really like when a book, if it's if it's a, a science fiction book, and it's it's making me more conscious of and thinking about a way to look at the world and a way to see how two different species are interacting and, and the way that there's those differences kind of drive some level of tension and friction and thinking about societies and how societies could function and who's in the background and who's in the foreground. And I am reading a book right now that in some ways is really trying to have more equitable gender dynamics, but at the same time, there's just this background threat to women sort of if there are some characters in the background and if there is an evil knight around because it's got a medieval setting probably the way that the badness of the knight will be shown is going to involve a threat towards women and it's interesting that now i'm noticing that and now i'm i'm seeing that in the books that i'm reading and i'm i'm seeing that and and realizing there's an authorial decision and that's that's a perception of the world, but you see that enough, and it sort of becomes an assumption about how the world works. And so I do what you said about being able to show the world as it could be, or the world as you would like it to be, really registered for me. Because I know that some of the things that I've responded to most strongly in books, both positive and negative, are ways that the world is being shown to me as I don't see it right now. Because because books have that possibility. Books are powerful. Yeah. They really are. And you can't forget that when you're writing. You know, if you're a reader, you can forget it sometimes. But you can't forget it as a writer. Because the words you put out there will affect somebody somehow. Mm -hmm. one, one of the best days of my life was when someone new I met on Twitter through another friend and I friended her. She told me that she'd read my books multiple times and they were her comfort reading. And I was like blown away. <laughs> and, you know, I can't forget that people I don't even know that something I write could have this effect on them. And that's why... I'm very careful about what I write. I'm very careful about how I portray women in my books. In the series I just finished, the first book has six women main characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and women are the main characters. There's two guys that go through the book the whole time. Gabe and Jack go through the whole series. But there is no doubt that the women drive the story and that they are the protagonists. Mm -hmm. I just read two books recently that illustrate this. They're by two new writers. One is called Radiant. It's the first book in a series by Karina Sumner-Smith. And it is an amazing book about a young girl in like a post-apocalyptic world who is rare for the fact that she doesn't have any magic. Magic is the currency in this world. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't have any, so she's the lowest of the low. But she can see ghosts, so people will pay her off in magic to deal with their ghosts. And the way she evolves and the way the world evolves in this book is incredible. I fell into that book and immediately went and fell into the second one. And I just got the third one, and I can't wait to read that. Mm -hmm. And another book that blew me away is called Archivist Wasp. By I've Nicole. heard really good things. Oh, you need to read this book. You really do. And again, it involves 
Wasp is the archivist for her people. And what the archivist does is capture ghosts and try and get them to relate their history, to tell them something, because they have lost their history. But she is dominated and controlled, at least as much as he can control her, by a priest from this, you know, I don't want to say cult, but it kind of comes comes across as, you know, this cult religion. Mm-hmm. And he has control of all these girls and young women, and Wasp finds a way to take that away from him. And she does it by freeing some, freeing one of the ghosts and becoming involved in the ghost's life and helping him. I can't tell you all of it because I'll spoil the whole thing. <laughs> but it, it's incredible. And she discovers there's so many things in her world that she didn't realize existed and so many layers and lies and other stories. And, you know, it, I loved it. Have you ever read Robert Jackson Bennett? I haven't, although City of Stairs is one of those books that comes up in about half the episodes I'm recording. I'm ha- I'm about 150, 160 pages into City of Stairs, and it's not the first one of his books I've read. I read Company Man first, and I read The Troop, and The Troop could be looked at as historical fantasy because it's set like in the 1930s in a vaudeville troupe that travels around the country. And it is one of the weirdest books I have ever read. (laughs) (laughs) But weird in that vastly entertaining, you know, way. And it made me cry at the end. And there's no higher praise for me than for a book to make me cry. Okay. So you should read his books. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Uh Uh-huh. I read that book. I don't think I was even 14 yet. I read it again later, late in my teens. The visions of the Martians and their crystal spires and, you know, dark they were and golden-eyed. I have never forgotten that. The visions of Mars that Bradbury put into my head will be with me my entire life. Bradbury taught me as a writer that you can write the most beautiful poetic prose in the in the world and scare the crap out of people. <laughs> I will never forget the Velt, although that wasn't part of the Martian Chronicles, but you know, I read all his books. I read Dandelion Wine, I read The Illustrated Man, Golden Apples of the Sun, R is for Rocket. I read all those books and at one time I owned all of them. I loved his stuff, but the Martian Chronicles will always you know, live on with me, you know, the the sands, the canals, the town that they built, the American settlers built on Mars that transformed into a Martian town, and they became Martians. I mean, all of that just blew me away. And it will always be with me and be one of my very favorite images and books. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at Jay Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at King Cabbage Cast. 
Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.